Welcome to Measured Justice, where we offer expert perspectives on important criminal justice issues in our communities and in our country. We believe knowledge is the most important tool we have to address the problems confronting the criminal justice system. At Measured Justice, we share expert research and analysis to help bridge the gap between what we know about criminal justice and what we actually do on the ground. We invite the smartest minds to the table to discuss the challenges of crime and punishment in America today. So that everyone walks away better informed. Join us for Measured Justice. This is Ashley Otto, Director of the Academy for Justice at Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law, and you're listening to Measure Justice. This episode will be introduced by my guest co-host today, Eric Luna, the Amelia D. Lewis Professor of Constitutional and Criminal Law and founder of the Academy for Justice, whose bio you can find on our website. Thank you, Ashley. The Academy for Justice is a criminal justice center at Arizona State University Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law that aims to connect research with policy reform and to share expert voices. Today on this episode, we'll be talking about Second Chance Month and the post-prison life for many in America. We're fortunate to be joined today by two leading experts, Professor Mark Osler, Professor and Robert Marion Short, a distinguished chair in law at the University of St. Thomas School of Law, and Professor Kevin Wright, Associate Professor and Director of the Center for Correctional Solutions at Arizona State University School of Criminology and Criminal Justice. You can find their full biographies on academyforjustice.org. Thank you, Kevin and Mark, for joining us today. So let's begin with the very idea of second chances in criminal justice and second chance month. Professor Wright, could you provide us some of the background behind the concept and the symbolic importance of this month? Sure, absolutely. And thank you for having me on the show. Um, you know, it's it's kind of interesting when I think of the phrase second chance. I think what's meant by that is, is second opportunity and thinking about opportunities that can be extended to people that are justice system involved. And uh, I actually wish that we didn't say second chance and we said second opportunity because um, sometimes there's also a connotation to chance that implies randomness or luck, like you're taking a chance on somebody and almost sets it up in a a negative way. But thinking about it in terms of second opportunities and and having a a second chance month, I think it's important to recognize that once somebody has served their sentence, that punishment should be over. And so afterward, it shouldn't be any extended punishment or, or making it so they're unable to succeed in other areas of life. And so it's important to think about these different ways and opportunities that pathways can be created for a pro-social life, for a different life, for an alternative life than the one that got them into the justice system. Kevin, let me me follow up quickly on this. With regards to the legislation, you've seen the various pieces of legislation on giving second chances. Do you see some that would be models? Uh, They all have some differences. The federal federal approach is different than than those in other states. Uh, Are there those that you think are best in dealing with the issues that you just uh, so eloquently put it? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And I'm, I'm always in favor of the, the broad category of, of approaches that are really like reach-in approaches that, that begin while people are on correctional supervision or while they're incarcerated and start by investing in people then. And so it's not something where 
you're waiting until they're released or waiting until they're off supervision and then the opportunities or then the programs or then the policies begin, but you're actually doing them while they're still under supervision. Um, to me, that's the best use of, of while people are incarcerated or the time that they serve. And it's a way that begins re-entry or begins that second opportunity um, before they're released into the community. To me, that's almost too late uh, to, to start once they're um, off of supervision. Mark, let me ask you a question to, to dovetail on that. Um, you are, in addition to being an expert in a variety of areas related to criminal justice and sentencing, an expert in clemency law. Could you talk to us a little bit about the interaction between the Second Chance Acts and the very idea of a Second Chance Month and this uh, presidential or gubernatorial power uh, to uh, give clemency to those who are incarcerated or otherwise fa facing some kind of negative consequence from criminal justice verdicts in the past? Yeah, I mean, first about Second Chance Month. I mean, in, in American culture, we've got these two values that are intention. We, we tend to be retributive. We want to hurt people who have hurt us. And, and the second value is that there is a deep cultural belief in redemption and mercy. A lot of times that's rooted in religion, but not always. And those two things pull against each other. And unfortunately, when we talk about things like Second Chance Month, we and there's two values in tension, we, we tend to fudge it. <laughs> you know, I mean, President Biden announced, having a proclamation about it being Second Chance Month, and then nobody getting a second chance as a result is is kind of typical unfortunately because there's a political cost to running up against the retributive urge of the society and even though they'll reflect the value of mercy actually doing something about it they're not they're they're too timid to take that um to take that leap in terms of second chance routes you know how we get there one of the big challenges that we've got is that many of the proposals for second chances to allow people out of prison before their terms are done, route things back to the sentencing judge. Um, we see that in the federal proposals and some of the states where, well, and even compassionate release. Compassionate release is routed through the court system and often the same judge that convicted somebody. And the problem with that, I mean, it's great for the people who get a second chance that way. But the problem with that having being the primary way that we give people second chances is it creates tremendous disparities. Judges who were harsh the first time are probably unlikely to grant a second chance the second time. And we, we now know that this is true. We've run the experiment with compassionate release. The Sentencing Commission released data by uh, judicial district that shows that there's remarkable disparities between districts. In the District of Oregon, over 60% of the people who wanted compassionate release got it. And you've got other districts like the Western District of North Carolina, where you've got less than 2%. Um, you know, the, the Middle District of Georgia and the Northern District of Georgia, totally different outcomes. And we don't have data by judge, but you can imagine that the inner judge disparities are even more stark probably. So relying solely or primarily on things that send us back to sentencing judges, um, it has two problems, really. One is that you've got these disparities are going to be created. The second is that almost always it gives a voice to the Department of Justice, the prosecutors who put the person in the first place. They're going to have a seat at the table to push back against these things. And, and again, that creates disparities. And it's also 
that's not who should have control over a second chance. It's the person who's committed to you know, eliminating the first chance. Now, clemency has the ability to cross over that, to, to not run into the same kind of disparities. Now, the problem is that nobody's doing clemency. I mean, there's some states that have, but at the federal level, we're completely stopped. I mean, President Biden, not only looking at a pile of 18,000 pending clemency petitions, not only is he not granted any, he hasn't denied any either. They just keep piling up. They're ignoring it. And so it, it, uh, it's a little frustrating when I hear this compelling statement of the value of second chances by a president who's completely ignored the constitutional method by which he's supposed to be giving second chances. Thank you for that. Professor Wright, you developed and taught the first Inside Out Prison Exchange Program class in the state of Arizona and are the co-founder of the Arizona Transformation Project. Could you tell us a little bit about these endeavors? Sure. I'm glad you're asking about these. So the, the Inside Out Prison Exchange Program is now an international program, but it was started in 1997 at Temple University um, by Lori Pompa and has since extended to 49 states, 12 countries, and um, I think over 70,000 students or something like that have, have taken the class. But basically, it brings traditional university students into a correctional setting to learn alongside people who are incarcerated. And once the class starts, it's just 20 students. You don't see incarcerated and non-incarcerated. And it's a regular college class um, where everybody has the same responsibilities. So we, we first taught that class in, in Arizona in 2016. We've now taught um, eight of those classes. And after the first class was finished, we decided that we weren't done um, doing the work. And so a few of the incarcerated students and some faculty and, and graduate students started the Arizona Transformation Project. And basically this class and, and this um, in-prison think tank and really all the work that we do in the ASU Center for Correctional Solutions uh, seeks to combine the academic knowledge, the research knowledge, the outside knowledge with um, the lived experience and with uh, the system knowledge. And we believe that the best solutions are, are developed when we have that blend, when we have the data and the research on what works and we combine that with the people that live and work in the system. And so those efforts are um, our approach in, in doing that. And we believe it makes much more sense than just doing either the academic side alone or the lived experience side alone. And in your experience, what has been the overwhelming attitude and reaction inside the prisons, both from staff and participants? Yeah, it's been overwhelmingly uh, positive. And I'm, I'm glad you mentioned staff as well, because it's, it, you know, all the opportunities and things that we do, we're not able to, to do it without the support of, of wonderful correctional staff and people that work within the system. And, you know, when you think about Second Chance Month and, and different um, policies and programs that could come out of it, um, I actually wish that we, we thought more about the people that were doing the work and, and supporting the people to do that work. But it's been positive from, from everybody that's involved with it. And again, you've got two sets of students in the Inside Out Prison Exchange Program. And our outside students, our, our traditional college students, get the experience to see the people behind the, the news stories and behind the arrest records. A lot of our outside students are going into law enforcement and going to law school and up until this point, I've never interacted or engaged with anybody who's, who's gone through the criminal justice system. 
And so here they've got an opportunity to, to see the humanity behind it all and understand things a little bit better. And what's so interesting about that is that our inside students get that same experience. And so we've had situations where um, men who are incarcerated um, maybe have very antagonistic views towards law enforcement in particular, that you know they haven't had any great experiences with police and that their uh, neighborhoods growing up might be over-policed. And so um, they hold these attitudes that are even supportive uh, of violence against uh, law enforcement. And yet here they're learning alongside outside students that are intending to go into law enforcement. And so no longer do you just think of all the negative experiences that you had growing up when you think about police, but you might now think of Megan, the student that you were learning alongside in this class, and you think differently about the people that go into policing. So um, it's a win for everybody around, and it's been a fantastic experience, certainly to teach, but also for our students to go through it and to learn. Mark, I'd like to follow up on what Kevin just said a little bit. The experience within the walls of prisons and jails and the ability for it to be something that is not uh, a stark negative, but in fact might, as Kevin lays out, be something that's transformational. How, how does that work within, in your mind, as a lawyer, as a law professor, and someone who is very uh, uh, in tune with the policy discussions that are occurring? How does, how does that play with uh, the types of decisions that need to be made in, in terms of this potentially back-end relief that, that is so starkly needed? Yeah, I mean, one thing that is most compelling, you know, regardless what route you're after in seeking the release for someone, and I say this, you know, I'm, I'm a doctrinal professor, but I have a clinic where we do clemency work. And so I work on cases all the time. And, and part of that is that you wanna, your strongest case is one that has a narrative that has a turning point. And that turning point is almost always gonna be in prison. And because we focus on that narrative, that turning point, we do find these moments where a prison, you know, for however briefly, is going to provide a positive input. You know, for example, one of uh, our clients was a guy named Rudy Martinez, and he had never read a book before he went to prison. And when he went to prison, uh, he started to read. And that was something that there was the time and space for for him to do. And in the end, it wasn't religion or anything else. It was literature that was transformative for him, that changed his values, that changed the way he looked at the world. And so there definitely are these parts of incarceration that can be part of rehabilitation. We're just pretty lousy at providing them. Mark, as a, as a kind of to follow up to a previous question and then to, to connect it with what you just said, there is this kind of rethinking that's occurring across criminal justice. And there are now, it appears to be, entire classes of crimes that are being rethought. The most notable one is probably marijuana and marijuana-related crimes, but there are other areas as well where there's a second thoughts about um, having even put individuals in prison to begin with. And yet there is um, a uh, imperative of public safety and the reality of what prison life has been for those who have been locked up sometimes for years and years and decades. How does that all play out? A rethinking of these uh, drug crimes being an example, but again, you can imagine others, and uh, the, the various avenues of relief um, that are available, including not just getting someone out of prison or jail, but also getting relief in terms of their record 
and the collateral consequences that they will carry going forward. Yeah, I mean, a couple of things on that. One is that, you know, when people re-enter, we all have a stake in them doing well. <laughs> um, that, that That's something that regardless of, of what you thought of their sentence or who they are as a person, we as a society have a stake in them becoming a, a contributing member of society in a way that's positive. And, and they so often do. But we've, we put up a lot of obstacles to that. And that's part of what's being rethought is the obstacles to thriving once people reenter. That, that there's an ending point to punishment, hopefully, um, as opposed to just continuing punishment through the rest of the person's life, even after they've been, they've been let out of prison. Uh, now, some of that reentry can be expensive. And that's part of what the societal discussion is about, is where is that going to come from? But in, in, it's coming from the private sector in a lot of places that you've got organizations that aid with reentry. Sometimes they have government contracts, sometimes they don't. But that's an area where accountability and innovation is going to be really important and has been really important. Now, the thing is that there has been that focus on, on reentry. We've had a focus, and you alluded to this in your question, in rethinking who we incarcerate and for how long. What's going to be tougher to get to is what's in the middle. What happens while people are incarcerated? Because reentry starts should start from the day the person gets into prison. There should be a pathway back to thriving that, that starts from the person's entry into prison instead of as they're walking out, which is how we tend to approach it. In terms of um, the rethinking of, of who we incarcerate and for how long, I hope that a lot of that is centered on on, on this, you know, the criminal justice and liberty are a zero sum game that every time that we create a new crime, we're taking away the freedom to do the act that's criminalized. Every day that we add to a sentence, we're taking a day of liberty away from one of our neighbors. And we should only do that really reluctantly. And particularly if it's solving a problem. And so much of what we've done with incarceration hasn't solved a problem that um, you know, I say this as someone who is a part of the machine. Uh, you know, I was a federal prosecutor in Detroit in the 90s. And so a lot of my cases, they were crack cases. That's who we were putting in prison. And I came to realize that the fact that I was putting this 18-year-old in prison for 10 years on a mandatory sentence wasn't stopping anybody from getting crack. That we're not solving a problem by doing that. Um, you know, you can say, well, it creates deterrence. Really? Because no one on the street seemed to know about that mandatory sentence. And the other part of deterrence that's necessary is there has to be a rational cost-benefit analysis going on. And that's not what this 18-year-old was doing. And so, you know, that's, that's the other part that I hope we're having a bipartisan, liberty-based discussion about is that we need to be much more reluctant to take away liberty and only do it when we can measure the benefit that we're going to get from that. Just another quick follow-up, so, because your, your, your response was, was rich with, with um, a lot that is worthy of discussion. How do you think we can overcome this? And maybe it's a speed bump. It has seemed like a barrier. This, as you mentioned, a, a reluctance, among other things, to spend money at all uh, on people who are incarcerated. Mm -hmm. uh, at the same time, a belief that incarceration is the appropriate uh, 
metric by which we punish people, right? A belief to some extent that an inmates deserve it, not only deserve what the sentence length is, but whatever the harsh treatment is, that's part of what you get. And which is always latent because it's, it's, not, it's not polite dinner conversation, right? But there is a sense in which it may well exist uh, under the surface. And then there are the litany of utilitarian arguments, consequentialist arguments that are, that are uh, brought out and um, are made sometimes without any kind of uh, empirical basis. You mentioned deterrence, but sometimes it's incapacitation. What, how do you overcome though that kind of long-term uh, sy systematic set of arguments that are made in favor both of incarceration and of uh, sometimes dismal uh, uh, opportunities within those uh, within the walls. Yeah, I mean, I think part of it has to be that we have to be honest about the cost of doing those things, and not just the cost in terms of money. And that's been surprisingly effective in some places. But we need to be honest in the cost of deliberate. You know that that's what we're trading away for supposed safety. But if it's not bringing us safety, we shouldn't we shouldn't be doing it. You know, the other thing, too, is that too often the discussion of crime, it's a tough one. You know, I mean, here in Minneapolis, we've had a spike in certain violent crimes. They've been part of a discussion amongst law enforcement and other groups about what to do about it. And so often the easy answers are, you know, longer sentences, no bail for people, even though there's, there's no data that's going to support that that's what's going to fix things. It's the, it's the easy answer. And people are afraid to confront law enforcement when they make those they make those claims that are are too easy. I mean, I, I've sat here in meetings with police chiefs, and they'll say, "Well, the spike in crime is because people are making bail." Well, people always made bail. That's what bail is here in Minnesota under the state constitution. There's not only a bar to unreasonable bail, but there's a constitutional right to have bail set, and so you just can't start banning bail. I mean, what is going to reduce crime and increase safety is, is usually two things. And one is solve more crimes. <laughs> you know, your clearance rate is what's going to make a difference in, in crime rates. And the other is execute your outstanding warrants. Now, what law enforcement doesn't like about that is it puts it on them to solve the problem as opposed to, to pushing things out to other areas. But, you know, in terms of the underlying problem with the discussion it's that it's us and them <laughs> that you know the them are those people who commit crimes of course until we commit crimes you know and that answer of well they should have thought about that before they committed the crime is totally ignoring the way people's brains work you know when, especially young people who are more uh, prone to commit crimes they're not doing rational cost benefit analyses. They're not thinking through, oh, well, this will happen if I got get caught and my chance of getting caught is this. That's just not the way the world works. And as long as we're building our criminal justice policy on myths, we're not going to get anything done. And it's we're going to pay this tremendous cost in, in freedom and treasure. Thanks, Professor Osler. And, and Professor Wright, before I move to your next question, do you have any thoughts or follow-ups on, on that last question? <laughs> um, there, there was a lot in there in, in that last question, but Mark's sitting on some, some critical things. And uh, what I kept thinking about is the, the sheer size of, of the system at this point, and the, especially the correctional populations that we have because of 
how many people have gone in and um, more importantly, how long they've gone in for. And we've gotten to a point where, where the systems are, are too big to meaningfully provide opportunities for people that, you know, when you hear people talk about warehousing, part of it is that it's just too big a population at this point to, to provide opportunities, to provide treatment, to even have the space to do it for a sizable number of people. And once it gets that big, it's almost like you, you throw up your hands and you don't do much of anything. And so I was, I was definitely thinking um, about that side of things. Focusing on what happens to people while they're incarcerated, can you talk to us a little bit about the limits of recidivism as our measure for correctional success? Yeah, sure. I'm, I'm, I'm glad you asked that too. It, it's kind of odd because in one sense, you know, recidivism, whether somebody returns the prisoner or not, you're like hoping for an event to not happen, right? Like that's, that's the bar is that our system is successful if something doesn't happen. Whatever else happens, who cares? But so long as somebody doesn't recidivate, we're good. And um, there's so many things that are, are challenging about that. One, it's it's difficult to measure recidivism. It takes time. Most people want you to look three years out or so for whether or not somebody has returned yet. If they don't return, it's incredibly difficult to pinpoint what the reason might have been um, for them returning or, or not returning uh, to say that it was this particular program or policy or experience that was the one that quote unquote worked. And so uh, at, at the very base level, it's, it's difficult to measure recidivism and to say what's responsible for that. Another challenge with that is that this makes it a criminal justice problem, and therefore we have to have criminal justice solutions. And to me, that's very limited in the different ways that we can think about how people spend their time under correctional supervision. For one, it puts it almost entirely on Department of Corrections to be responsible for recidivism reduction. Um, again, when they're under-resourced and perhaps not trained to deal uh, with mental illness and substance abuse and, and trauma and addiction and things like that. And it limits our opportunities to think of what else could we hope for for our system. Again, right now, the baseline hope is that an event doesn't happen, that future crime or, or criminal behavior doesn't happen. And instead, we could think about correctional success in terms of things that do happen, whether that is people getting jobs or people being reunited with their family or people being clean, all these little indicators along the way that are perhaps lost and whether or not somebody recidivated, yes, no. And so I think so much has been focused on reducing recidivism, which puts us focused on risk factors and reducing risk, risk factors when we could be focused on strengthening and promoting resilience and factors that can lead people to something else besides a life of criminal behavior. I couldn't agree more. Thank you, Professor Wright. And Professor Ozar, I want to go back to something you talked about earlier in our discussion. You talked about the limitations of clemency being bound by the sentencing judge. And here in Arizona, we have a statute which allows the sentencing judge to enter an order allowing a person to petition the Board of Executive Clemency for commutation if the court, i.e. the sentencing judge, uh, believes the sentence required by law is clearly excessive. As a former public defender myself who's appeared before the Board of Executive Clemency on this basis, I'm curious, can you tell us how does this stack up against what you see nationwide? Well, I mean, first of all, I, I 
what I said was that talking about the federal system is that clemency doesn't go back to the, the sentencing judge. It's these other processes like compassionate release that are going to go back to the judge and some of the proposed second look. So clemency in the federal system and in most other states doesn't go back to the sentencing judge. Arizona is unusual that way, I, I'd imagine. That means that clemency that does have that ability to not go back to the same judge has an advantage in that we can implement principles uniformly. Um, you know, we can say, okay, let's identify the the marijuana prisoners, for example, um, who we've got, who have, who have, it's not associated with other forms of crime and give them clemency. And it won't matter what that sentencing judge thinks because they're going to have very varying views on marijuana. Um, and so we can work our way around that. I would, I would caution any system from taking up that, uh, that pattern that you have there of sending it back to the sentencing judge. I think that's really unfortunate. I mean, the barrier, the barrier to clemency at the federal level is timidity, that we've had presidents who had values that they articulated they would use with clemency who pulled their punches. President Obama should have done, uh, you know, thousands more than he did, according to the principles he articulated. Um, President Biden should be, too, based on what he said on the campaign trail. Um, so we've, we've had some holes. That it's, provides a nice opportunity to think about um, more globally about these things for, for both um, both you, Kevin, and uh, for you, Mark. What should we be hoping for? What Given this month, the Second Chance Month, and given what we um, know as a matter of the academic and uh, research that's been done, and given what you know as experts of the, of the systems here in the United States and also um, elsewhere, is there a model approach in the real world? somewhere or from some time that we should be aiming for? Is there an end that is, that is uh, uh, visible and, uh, within our own lifetimes? Um, or is this instead just an ongoing process and we're just simply working our way, muddling through the issues of uh, penology in the United States? So let me begin with um, uh, uh, you, Kevin, if, if you don't mind. Sure. You know, I, I think it's tough because I, I don't think that we can take um, the criminal justice system or the correctional system um, out of the larger context that the, that the nation is in, out of the, the socio-political context. And so you'll often hear about, you know, the Norway model or, or, or international models of the, in the way that they approach um, how they rehabilitate. And they sound fantastic, right, to, to implement. And I know there's there's good efforts underway in the United States to, to implement some of those things, but absent, you know, a larger, more supportive um, culture and perhaps less, less inequality in our nation, it's hard to see those working out as well as they do um, internationally. And so, you know, to, to your original question, what's, what's an end goal? And when we think about Second Chance Month in particular, I think it's it's probably similar to a, a lot of other days and months that we have that that essentially we make them obsolete that we we have no no meaning for a, a second chance month because that's how we approach things all the time and you know to to borrow from other countries I think people approach um, punishment and, and corrections in a way that certainly does acknowledge that the people are once again going to be a part of their communities. 
that it isn't that us versus them mentality that people are locked away and maybe we can just forget about them. And so um, people enter systems with the idea that, you know, um, they can leave that system better than when they arrived, ready to contribute to their, their communities and, and families. And there's almost just this underlying culture, both for the way that we punish, but also the way that people work in those systems, that people are coming back. And that if they come back better, that everybody is going to, to benefit from that. And so, um, again, I think it's more of this larger cultural shift that certainly Second Chance Month is a, a good thing for, that we humanize the people behind the walls. More and more people have someone in their family, in their community, in their neighborhood that has served time, that has been in prison, that it's become more of a, a thing that people are familiar with. And, um, you know, I was just teaching a university class the other day, and uh, I asked that question, how many people, you know, what percent of people do you think are leaving prison to once again return to our communities? And I thought by now everybody knows that one, and uh, nobody did. And it's something like 95% of the people, right? Nearly everybody is, is coming back again to our community. And so what would it look like if we approached punishment and we approached corrections with that in mind that one day they're going to be back alongside us. Same question for you, Mark. What do you see as our plausible goals in this arena? What should we be shooting for or hoping for as a nation in this very vital area of criminal justice? Yeah, I mean, I I think that it's unlikely we're going to become Norway anytime soon. Now, I say that with a certain amount of regret, um, in terms of criminal justice, but that's just not within our culture or, or close to where we are. But there are things within our own history that should give us hope. And one of them is that consistently after major wars, there's been the use of mass clemency. We saw it after the Civil War, um, after the First World War, after World War II, after Korea, and then after Vietnam in this really remarkable way, where President Ford, at a VFW convention, announces that he's forming a special commission to give a second chance to people who had deserted the army or, or um, evaded the draft. And this commission was really remarkable. They were commissioned for one year. He uh, had Charles Goodell, who was a moderate Republican like Ford, chair it. And he got people like Father Hesburgh, who was the president of Notre Dame to be on it, Vernon Jordan. And, and for people with a military background to be a part of it too. And for a year, you know, that took them a little while to get their act together. But when they did, you know, they granted conditional pardons to over 6,000 people. And of course, Jimmy Carter went and gave amnesty more broadly to those people. And when people think about President Ford and clemency, they don't think of that. A lot of people don't know about that, which means it worked. It wasn't a disaster. There wasn't some resulting crime wave or anything like that. Um, you know, someday we're going to be over the war on drugs. <laughs> Sometimes people say, oh, well, that's done. But it's not if you look at what's happening out there. You know, the people are still being arrested for possession of marijuana. People are still being locked up for small transactions. But when it does end, when we finally realize the insanity of the approach that we've had, it would be great if we did something like this commission. If we had, after that war, we realized that the nation needed to be healed, that we'd overdone it, that the agencies that people believed in 
when that fervor was going, were overstated and we needed to have a correction. That would be pretty amazing. You know, the other thing too, that I think is a lesser point, but still important, is that it would help a lot if people saw what success looked like, you know, if they saw what a second chance looked like. I mean, we have these moments where, uh, you know, someone's released from prison, you know, Alice Johnson running across the street to her family. But what about the next year? What about two years after that? You know, I mean, it's it's not something that's going to make the news because I've, I've visited a lot of people that got clemency um, a couple of years down the road and they're living in an apartment. Sometimes they get married. They're working a security job or driving a truck. And that's great. I mean, it is this, this life that they've, over a lot of obstacles, have been able to patch together. Um, you know, and to get, finally, to get more people to that point, one thing that would be worthwhile would be to recognize the talents that got them to prison in the first place. And here's what I mean by that. If you're bad at crime, you're probably not going to end up in prison for very long. The people who end up in prison for a long time were good at crime. And if you're going to be good at crime, you have to have some talents. Um, you know, if you're a gang leader, you've got some talents that got you there. If you're really good at selling narcotics or organizing a, a, a group, um, you know, a conspiracy, there's some talent there. And, uh, you know, what we need to do, and, and, and unfortunately, our reentry looks like this. Get a job where you're working nine to five and you're making minimum wage and you can show your pay stub. But that doesn't recognize the talents that got people into prison in the first place. A lot of times they're entrepreneurs, but they're barred from using those talents by the way that we treat people who are reentering and this one size fits all expectation. And I think we, that needs to be rethought as well. And then we'd have a lot more good stories to tell of reentry. Well, that's a great way to uh, bring today's episode to a close. Uh, we've reached an end for our podcast. I, I want to thank our guests for a really enlightened discussion on second chances after prison life. Professor Mark Osler, the Robert Marion Short Distinguished Chair in Law at the University of St. Thomas School of Law, and Professor Kevin Wright, Director of the Center for Correctional Solutions at Arizona State University School of Criminology and Criminal Justice. Thanks also to our producer for today's program, Amina Ketchin-Kamel. This podcast was a service of the Academy for Justice at Arizona State University's Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law. I'm Eric Luna, and this has been Measured Justice.